Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi. Hello. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the late 90s and early 2000s. I am one of your hosts, Margot Poupard. And I'm your other host, Emily Beijing. This world simply does not have enough joy. So I will no longer pretend that I am above pop punk because I am not. I am a loud and proud Blink-182 fan. Yes, I have listened to some 41 sober on a Wednesday morning for for non-old millennial purposes. What if, what if Fat Lip is just good? Ever think about that? And It's I a have, great song. Thank you. I'm, I was contemplating, like, do I start it by saying... I stole into the party like my name is El Nino, or is well, that like so incredibly? <laughs> is that incredibly white and dorky of me, or should I start the episode this way? No, no, I plan on doing a little bit of rap rock uh, verse rapping later in my uh, segment on some forty one. So you're fine. Well, a ba with a ba to you, Emily. <laughs> thank you, thank you. My name is Kid. No, I'll, I'll stop there. No, and we're definitely not talking about Kid Rock at all today, or. I mean, I feel like that will be the extent of it. If you want to hear us talk about Kid Rock, I think it's like that 1999 singles episode. We talk about him. Yeah, but and back, that's, that's about it. <laughs> back to our beloved pop punk, some from Southern California, some from Canada-ish. I will continue to defend Blink-182's self-titled or untitled, depending on who you ask, because it's hands down one of their best albums, and I listen to it all the time. It was great to listen to Blink-182 all day while doing research, but also... Like I told Emily before we hit record, that's also not really that far off from my regular day-to-day. It's actually kind of funny because early into pandemic time, one of the first kind of like funny conversations I had was about music taste regressing in quarantine and that I immediately felt the teen angst and started playing a lot of Blink-182 and have not stopped. I so, the same same here. I've listened to a lot of Blink, listened to a lot of Sum 41. I listened to Simple Plan at one point. Um, <laughs> and then I definitely dove into that emo playlist that we created for our emo episode, mm-hmm. which was a mm-hmm. plug that I did not intend to make during this episode, but I've just made. I have gone back and listened to that playlist. It's pretty good. It, it slaps. It slaps. I'm 
It's not our fault that we picked great songs for this playlist. I would say we should do, actually, maybe we should do like a pop punk. I mean, we not should. just Blink-182 and some 41, but we should. We should. And to just bring it back around to our, what we love to do at the beginning of every episode, which is some personal anecdote with some banter. Have you seen either of these bands play live? And if you have, did you see them like on a Warp Tour or did you see them at some punk venue that I'm unaware of in D.C.? Uh, so I've seen Blink-182 at a uh, festival in D.C. It was at Columbia, Maryland. It was called the Virgin Mobile Free Fest, and it was free tickets, as, just as it sounds. And the oh. headliners headliners were Weezer, Blink-182, and Public Enemy. And I got to say, Blink put on a great show. I mean, it just – they played all – for lack of a better – term to borrow from some 41's album tile they played all killer no filler and they even went into an every rose has its thorn by poison cover towards the end which was fantastic so i enjoyed myself how about you um i got to see blink 182 at the universal amphitheater which is the and i'm sure it's called something else now but it's on universal city walk it's the big amphitheater that they have on their Take Off Your Pants and Jacket tour in 2001. It was a graduation gift from my dad. And Modest Mouse opened for them, which I thought was interesting because I would later see Modest Mouse on a first date with my husband at that same venue. And they had oh, really? Man Man open for them. And that was the first time I'd ever seen Man Man. I was like, wow, this cult is actually like pretty good because <laughs> they were all sort of dressed like... um what is that? What's that? Oh, the band? polyphonic spree. Thank you. I'm like they're from <laughs> they're from Flower Mound, Texas. Like that's all yeah. I ever remember of them. But yeah, I, I saw Man Man open for Modest Mouse. It's just an interesting little like circle of life there. But I love them. I got like a really cool shirt from that tour too, which was like, and it was an orange shirt. So I would wear it like around Halloween that had like a flower that was wilting. The petals were falling off, and it spelled Blink 182. And Aww. even my dad had a great time. They only, you know, they played some off of Damn It, or I'm sorry, some off of Dude Ranch, and then it was mostly just like all Enema of the State and like a couple of the singles that were off of Take Off Your Pants and Jacket, but I had a great time. It was odd because it was a seated show and it felt like it needed to have a mosh pit, um, but I just remember thinking like, oh, I'm standing up, like I hope I'm not blocking someone's view. <laughs> And it was also like one of the first like rock shows I had gone to as well. Because before that, I think the extent was I saw Brandy live in concert, like at the Hollywood Bowl in Santana. And that was pretty much the extent of my concert life, you know, up until 13. That's amazing. I, fun fact, didn't get to really see any concerts that were like non-classical or jazz until I was about 17 or 18, apart from like a high school band playing. Like when I think about like a, you know, major artist type of concert, I didn't really see any until I was like 17 or 18. I think my first one, I hate to say this, was a country music show. <laughs> Who'd you see? Oh God. I think it was um, Trace Adkins and Gretchen Wilson. Ooh. Yeah, not, not just like not fun country. I mean, like, I guess Gretchen Wilson had like one or two fun songs, but like both people who I'm pretty sure Trace Adkins was on The Apprentice. Gretchen Wilson, I'm not sure if she said anything problematic, but just like not the people, not like Dixie Chicks fun country, you know? Definitely not. I once was invited to and then flaked on tickets to see um, what's his name? Keith, I was going to call him Keith Sweat. Nicole, Nicole Kidman's husband, Keith, oh, Keith Urban. Urban. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I do not regret that decision. I was like, yeah, maybe I'll go. And I think I listened to one song. It's like, I'm just not going to call her back about going. (laughs) (laughs) But I think I was mostly allowed to see rock concerts because my dad was like peak, like midlife crisis divorce guy. Like, I'm cool. I'm hip. And he went to all sorts of shows. Like, he saw Nine Inch Nails before I did. He saw Beck in concert several times. At like a bunch of really nice venues too, obviously. <laughs> I um, had this dilemma for happened to me about ten years ago when I get a text from my parents that they are currently in Brooklyn visiting their friends and seeing Iron and Wine in concerts, and I'm like, "What is happening here?" <laughs> yeah, that's a lot to take in, you know. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess I will start about Blink-182, or as I like to call their origin story, what do you call a formation of white guys from Poway? As a sketch from a Blink-182-themed show once informed me, there are not a lot of famous people from Poway, California. In fact, judging by a quick skim, the two names that jumped out to me are Bruce Bochy and Lorenzo Lamas. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I know. There were also like a bunch of other like baseball players and like football players. I'm like, but I don't know you. I mean, I know Bruce Bochy just because of the Giants and then obviously Lorenzo Lamas, like self-explanatory. But you know who else comes from the San Diego suburbs? Members of Blink-182. Formed in August of 1992, after Tom DeLong was expelled from his high school for showing up to a basketball game wasted, he was forced to finish the semester at another school where he'd meet their original drummer, Scott Raynor. DeLong also befriended Carrie Kay, who was dating Anne Hoppus, Mark Hoppus' sister. Anne introduced Hoppus to DeLong, and with their shared interests in the Descendants skating and surfing, they hit it off immediately and began performing music in Tom's garage. They play for hours, exchanging lyrics and co-writing songs, which one of them would eventually become Carousel. The trio would practice together also in Scott Rayner's room and at some point in hopes to try to impress Tom, who was younger than Mark. Mark is the oldest person in this band to this day. Mark fell from a lamppost in front of Tom's house and cracked his ankles and ended up on crutches for three weeks, which had very big, like, that thing you do energy. Remember when oh, uh, Giovanni yeah, 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 yeah. is, yeah, like, yeah, jumping yeah. over the meters and then he breaks his <laughs> fucking arm as a drummer? Uh, yes. <laughs> anyway, before they settled on Blink, they went through a couple names like Duct Tape, but Duck is spelled like Quack Quack Duck and Figure Eight. But then they just settled on Blink. As Blink started to take form, Mark was living with his girlfriend and barely scraping by. He was working part time at a record store, I think. Mark went out and bought his first professional equipment, a new amp and a bass cabinet. He came home and his girlfriend proceeded to yell at him, angry that he had spent what little money they have on something she felt that they didn't need. Quote, I just kept telling her, this is what matters to me. This is my life, Hoppus recalls. She demanded he make a choice between the band and her, which resulted in Hoppus leaving the band shortly after they had just formed and like settled on a name. Tom and Scott borrowed a four-track recorder from their friend, and they were preparing to record a demo tape with someone else on bass, which prompted Mark to dump his girlfriend and then come back to the band. Flyswatter which was a combination of original songs and punk covers, was recorded in Rayner's bedroom in May of 1993. Tom, in 2013, reflected on the band's foundation, saying thus, quote, we had a lot of fucking fun. We were all we were out all night skateboarding. We were out throwing food and drinks at security guards who were chasing us through malls, skateboarding at four in the morning, eating donuts at places, making hot donuts near the beach, breaking into schools and finding skate spots in dark schools or or skating down parking lot garages naked and shit in downtown San Diego, which reading all of their quotes about how the band got together and how well they hit it off just makes me bummed about how things ended for them yeah and sort of makes you a little bit nostalgic like and it also proves that beastie boys kind of accomplished a difficult thing which was staying friends throughout all of it 
100%. And also just shifting their music at the appropriate times, which I think Blink-182 yes. did pretty well. But honestly, I think they 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 did it in such a way where they they put so much focus on their side projects, which you'll get into later, I'm sure. But like it got to a point where, you know, they're, it was they could come back. Of, there, it was a combo of things, but mostly... Uh, it, it it comes down to an unofficial fourth member of the band that I will talk about later. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the band started getting booked every weekend from Elks Lodges to the YMCA to clubs. They also started to convince high schools to let them play under the auspices that Blink actually had, quote, motivational. They were a motivational band with a strong anti-drug message in hopes of playing like an assembly or like, you know, how sometimes at lunch they would let a band play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The band grew in popularity and they quickly got on the local circuit with other bands like Ten Foot Pole and Unwritten Law. And they were soon the opening act at Soma, which was a local all ages venue. One of the band's biggest dreams when they first started was to headline there. Meanwhile, Mark's manager at the record store that he worked at, Patrick Secor, decided to front the money to the band so they could record a proper demo, which was the result was Buddha in 1994, which the band members viewed as their first legitimate release. Later that year, Scott's family relocated to Reno, where he was briefly replaced by musician Mike Kroll. But the band eventually just saved money and would fly Scott out at his shows. And eventually in mid-95, he moved back and he moved in with Mark Hoppus. So in their early years after Buddha, they signed to Cargo Records on a, quote, trial basis, whatever the fuck that means. And because Mark was the oldest and the most unemployed one, because Scott Rayner was still a minor, and I think that Tom was, like, working somewhere else... He was the only one that technically signed to Cargo, but the band goes on to record Cheshire Cat that was later released in February of 95, and they had recorded it in three days. Eminem is their first single, and it starts to get local airplay on 91X, which I'm sure if we had Eileen or John Cross on here, they could tell us just how fucking cool that radio station is since since they are our San Diego experts. But (laughs) based off of the success of Eminem, two things happen. Cargo gives them money to shoot a music video, which I went back and watched, and it was about what you would expect, like looked a little self-produced self-directed like it's them playing in an undisclosed location but looks like a giant empty warehouse but it's all dark so you can't really tell what's happening in the background two of the three members have bleached hair which i was like that is a cry for help when two men have bleached hair and they're in a band together you only get (laughs) one member with bleached hair that's it maybe a frosted tip so one and a half you get 1.5 members per band Emily, I barely recognized Tom DeLong with that bleached hair. I was like, who the fuck is that guy? And then he like took off his sunglasses at one point. I'm like, whoa, blonde hair is not for you. It's not for everyone. No, it's not for Tom it's DeLong. Not. Certainly not. But, so they shoot this music video and Cargo gave them money. And then they get popular enough that that a British band called Blink is like, change your name or we'll fucking sue you. So they agreed to change their name. And after some back and forth with Cargo, they eventually just threw a random 182 at the end. At the end of all of this, they signed with manager Rick DeVoe, who at the time also represented NoFX, Pennywise, and The Offspring, and Tahoe Booking, who signed them up for their first national tour in 1995. The tour was to promote a surf video called Good Times, directed by Taylor Steele, who was a very good friend of their manager, Rick DeVoe. And also, it makes sense that they're on tour to support a surf video, because the second time I heard a Blink song was in a skate video, which, you know, surf skate, I know they're not necessarily the same thing, but it's the same type of person. Um, the first time I heard a Blink song was in Can't Hardly Wait. Oh, no, I was just going to say the same thing. Like, they play Damn It in the, in the movie, and I think that might have been the first time I heard them. That song fully just reminds me of Can't Hardly Wait. <laughs> Every time yeah. I hear it, that's all I can think about the is that giant party. is getting busted. <laughs> exactly. So the tour goes so well that they extended it and added a leg to Australia. But when they couldn't afford to fly out there, Pennywise paid for all of their tickets, which was very nice. 
And the guitarist of Pennywise, Fletcher Drag, also insisted that Blink-182 get signed to play the 96 Warp Tour. And we're basically touring after that on and off the Warp Tour for over a year. And by March of 96, there was a three-way bidding war to sign them to a major label between Interscope, MCA, and Epitaph. MCA promised them complete artistic freedom, and they ultimately signed with them, but their drummer at the time, Scott, really wanted to go to Epitaph, and that was sort of the beginning of the end for him and the band. They also got a bunch of shit from the punk community for quote-unquote selling out, but what the fuck ever. In late 96, they recorded Dude Ranch over the course of a month with producer Mark Trombino, who has produced tons of punk bands, but in addition to that, has also produced every single Jimmy Eat World record. If you look at his, if you look oh, at his credits, yeah. it's the one band he's done every single record for. Mm-hmm. It was released in 1997, right before Warp Tour, and the first single off Dude Ranch, Damn It, hit gold by the end of 98, thanks to heavy rotation on radio. But the grueling touring schedule and personal issues, Scott started to drink a lot to the point where I assume it affected his performance. And even though he agreed to quit drinking and go to rehab, Mark and Tom fired him in mid-98. That's when our short, rhythmically gifted king, Travis Barker, enters the picture. Please know I've loved Travis since 19- since 1998. <laughs> I've loved Travis Every- Barker since the eighth grade. So Every tattoo tells a story. The man is just like a walking story. Just all sorts of stories. I all yeah, and he's also five nine. I had to look it up because I was like, before I like put him on blast by calling him short, I just want to make sure I'm checking my facts right. At the time, Travis was the drummer for their tour mates, the Aquabats, and Travis managed to learn their twenty song set list in forty five minutes. Mouths, what the fuck? That's crazy. And by July, he was their permanent drummer. Mm-hmm. Quick, quick story. I I watched a ska punk documentary because I am me, and uh, they interviewed the Aquabats and they talked about that show in particular. And they were like, the moment that show happened, we were like, "Fuck, we are losing Travis to this band," and that was it. <laughs> yeah, I and I'm really bummed. I must have seen the Aquabats in that time when they were like switching over drummers because I feel like I would have remembered seeing Travis Barker, but around this time at a bar and or bat mitzvah, I cannot remember which one the kid had rich enough parents that they had the aquabats play their party and i remember that being like the first time i'd heard ska music outside of clueless and i was like oh cool <laughs> I, was like, I think i like ska <laughs> but i don't remember travis barker being there is the main point so that must have been around the time that he had left after tour rap, they returned to the studio with Jerry Finn, the producer responsible for their huge mainstream albums, Enema of the State, Take Off Your Shirt and Jacket, and Self-Titled Untitled. And Jerry is who I'm referring to as the unofficial fourth member. So we're, we're going to now get into peak Blink-182 time, like that inescapable time between 1999 and 2002, where their music videos and their songs were constantly on the radio and constantly on MTV. And even if you did like them, you were starting to feel exhausted, right? So released it on June 1st of 1999, Enema of the State was recorded over three months between LA and San Diego. Their lyrics were inspired by adolescent frustration, relationships, and UFO conspiracies. The infamous cover art featured porn star Janine Lind Mudler in a nurse outfit. Still being accused of being sellouts, these sellouts sold over 50 million records and all three singles, What's My Age Again, All the Small Things, and Adam's Song were a bigger commercial success than the band and the label could have imagined. All the small things peaked on the Hot 100 at number six, calling it like a crossover hit, which is huge for like a a big band. But all three hit the top three on the rock and alt charts. They were also a fucking hit on MTV and all three music videos dominated TRL. I'm sure all of you remember all three. Well, actually, I shouldn't say that. All the Small Things was that spoof on all of the boy band music videos, which I thought was really hilarious because the ba- the music videos they were spoofing were also charting on TRL at the exact at same the time. At the same time, yeah. 
And I'm not sure if teens like fully grasp the irony of that, but that's very funny. Um, What's my age again is very is I mean, that was their big hit. And they were most known for up until all the small things as being the guys who are running around naked in their music video. And then Adam's song is, you know, a sadder, slower song that they eventually retired after the tragic plane crash accident that I will briefly touch on towards the end. But that's a little bit more. It's a, they're like in a house. It's a little bit darker. It's sort of like their version of Stan, like Eminem Stan. Think of that. Yes. So all three of these music videos, though, dominated TRL. And one of the state also had a considerable effect on pop pump, pop punk music, inspiring a quote unquote second wave of the genre and even a couple of ripoffs. The success also of Enema of the State launched them on their first arena tour. So they graduated from kind of playing clubs and opening maybe for bigger acts in an arena for Warp Tour to, to being the headliner, in addition to cameos on TV and in American Pie. But they were rushed by MCA to produce their follow up. So they released Take Off Your Pants and Jacket June 12th, 2001, two years post Enema of the State. Take Off Your Pants and Jacket became their first number one album in the US, Canada, and Germany. The singles, the rock show, which was written in 10 minutes, basically on a dare. Their manager said, you don't have any summer fun songs. And Tom DeLonge took that personally, just like Michael Jordan. And I wrote was the about rock show. to say it. <laughs> also, they have Stay Together for the Kids and First Date. All were on the top 10 on the rock charts. Jerry Finn, now the unofficial fourth member of Blink-182, returned as their producer slash mediator. So he was sort of like the go-between Tom and the rest of the band because at around this point Tom and the rest of the band were constantly at odds about what the sound and direction of Blink would be and so Jerry Finn kind of kept them on the cohesive sound path because Tom really wanted to do his signature shit which was like his nasally singing voice which is fine especially like for emo-y post-hardcore punk like kind of music and just heavy fucking guitar like constant guitar riffs. Finally, with a break between touring and recording, Tom decides to channel all of his underappreciated musical tastes and talents into a different band, Boxcar Racer. Boxcar Racer will mark the downfall of Blink-182 because Tom asks Travis to come play drums on a couple tracks, effectively leaving Mark out, and what's supposed to be just some side project for Tom turns into this quote-unquote duo from Blink-182, especially when Boxcar Racer goes on tour not once but twice. Even though Tom swears up and down, he didn't mean to leave Mark out. The damage is done and the divide between the band begins here. I love dude bro fights too. Like a part of me is like, come on guys, just communicate. But also that's exactly why they are the way that they are and they don't speak to each other now. In the meantime, our king, Travis Barker, is staying booked and busy and minding his own fucking business. He stand, he starts another band with Branson's Tim Armstrong, which is, he's questionable now in, in retrospect, but he starts the transplants with them, which I actually really liked, you know, going back to the ska side of you and I's musical tastes. (laughs) (laughs) And after their little band break, the gang gets back together to record their fifth album and their best album. It's a departure from what we're used to with Blink-182, but I think with the exception of the track with Robert Smith, which I loved at the time but cannot stand now, the experimentalism kind of works in their favor. Inspired by all becoming fathers for the first time around this era and all of their different side projects, they still have like a couple of other typically horny songs, especially feeling this. But I feel like it all kind of works like they took some risks that I thought really kind of pay off. And maybe it's an album that sounds better now than it did in 2003. But I think also out of all of like the songs and lyrics that they've composed, if you're I would say it's the most timeless because some of like the like. I'm making like dick and fart jokes like are very funny and have a time and place where I feel like there are some tracks on this album that you can kind of listen to anytime. Yeah, 
we're going to move past that to self-titled, untitled, was released November 18th, 2003 through Geffen, which had by that time absorbed MCA earlier that year, which I don't like to use that terminology when it comes to business, like absorb, like it feels kind of gross, but I don't really know how else to describe <laughs> what happened to MCA. The album debuted at number three and both singles, Feeling This and I Miss You, both charted in the top 20 of rock charts with I Miss You going to number one. On the European leg of their 2004 tour, tensions rose to an untenable degree and they scrapped p- plans to promote what would have been their third single, Always, another excellent song. And now that explains why that single never got more love off that record. So on February 22nd, 2005, Geffen released a press statement announcing the band's, quote, indefinite hiatus. Tom felt conflicted about his creative freedom within the group and the toll of touring was taking on his family life. So he asked the band if they could have six months off, which Mark and Travis thought was a really long break. After a contentious benefit show and some heated exchanges, Tom decided to exit the band and left the public eye. But Tom would return to the public eye in the fall of 2005 to announce his new band, Angels and Airwaves, and also let us know that he is for real into aliens and shit. (laughs) Oh, yeah. A big time. I I mean, I know that he blames being addicted to painkillers at the time for like the kind of kookiness, shall we say, of that press release announcing Angels and Airwaves. But he has since to go on to talk about aliens shit multiple times. So like we can't all chalk it up to just painkillers. okay? like you really do just believe in it. And I wonder if he's going to show you're in. I was going to say, do you think he's mad Demi Lovato got her or sorry, got their own uh, got their own alien spinoff show? It is funny. You should say that because I posted the same thing on Twitter a week ago. (laughs) Full circle, baby. It always comes up old millennials. We know this. So in the meantime, Mark and Travis also started a new band. Plus 44, which wasn't as successful as Angels and Airwaves. But again, Travis stays booked and busy and minding his own business. And he goes on to star in a reality show in 2005, which I believe Tom and or Mark and or both were not happy about. He also starts Famous Stars and Straps and generally is just a working drummer. He taught Rihanna, okay? The band didn't speak to each other until 2008 when two tragedies struck back to back. First, Jerry Finn dies suddenly of a cerebral hemorrhage and Travis survives a fucking plane crash. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Rallying around Travis brings them all back together, and once he's out of the hospital, they all agree to reunite officially. And at the 2009 Grammys, as presenters, they announce their reunion and go on a tour that following summer with Weezer and Fall Out Boy. That's when I saw it, by the way. Oh, okay. Yeah. Talk about a tour geared towards old millennials. Yes. But 
because of part of Travis's PTSD and it involves flying, they had to travel by bus and ocean liner, which I remember because everybody made a big deal about them. Like, oh, isn't that so cool? They're taking an ocean liner to Australia. But after tour, they try to record together, but that doesn't work. So they all record in their separate little like home studios, like those old married couples who don't live together but refuse to divorce. This plus the non-unifier of Jerry being around, the same old shit starts to happen, which is they don't fucking communicate. So... They eventually put together their sixth and final album in this formation, Neighborhoods, and it was released September of 2011 and hit number two on the Billboard charts. Eventually, Tom will leave again, and Mark and Travis decided to sail without him, as they say, and hired Alkaline Trio's Matt Skiba in March of 2015. And that's where we're at today because Blink-182 still releases music. They released a song, or I'm sorry, they released a single during quarantine called Quarantine. And I think as recent as 2018 they had another album 2017 sorry there's a deluxe edition but yeah and that's blink 182 so uh as you were talking i did check the date of the concert i saw when i saw them live in 2009 and i was immediately jolted and remembered i saw them two dates after dj am had died and (gasps) uh they were uh, they were a little emotional on stage. I had forgotten about this because it's been so long. Um, I know that like I had seen videos from the night like bef- the night they played before where they were very emotional. But uh, yeah, they were a little emotional at the this when I saw them because it was yeah literally two days after he had died. Well, after he passed, that's when they decided to retire Adam's song. So, yeah. which I have to say before we talk about. Some 41. I think it is kind of incredible that these, I mean, I guess they were older than their audience, obviously, but these sort of like early 20s men wrote really catchy songs about difficult subjects like teen suicide and your parents getting divorced and made them mainstream singles that people like really related to and really identified with. And I think they had a huge part sort of in teen culture from 99 to 2002. 100%. I think Symphony 41 to an extent also did the same thing. I mean, their biggest hit songs were definitely the faster ones that were not like that, but um, they definitely had a few of those as well, for sure. And on that note, when I was 13 years old, I spent a lot of my summer with my French aunt who lives in Montreal and later went to summer camp north of the city in Saint-Jevis, Quebec. During that summer, my aunt invited me over to one of the teacher's or she invited to dinner um, one of the teachers from the Montessori school that she ran. And this teacher also happened to be a part-time nanny to a girl. And this girl came over for dinner with the teacher, proceeded to give my sister and I several CDs from various Canadian bands that were signed by Aquarius Records, That her this label that her father, Terry Flood, co-founded. Of those CDs was All Killer, No Filler, the classic album recorded by the band that I'm talking about today, Sum 41. So Sum 41 is a band that was formed in Ajax, Ontario. Ajax, for those of you who don't know, is a suburb of Toronto, about 25 kilometers or 16 miles away from the city. The band originally formed under the name Casper in 1996 when the original members were in 10th grade at Exeter High School. The original members were guitarist Derek Whibley, drummer Steve Yotch, John Marshall and Richard Roy. When they first began, Marshall was the lead singer and Wibley was the lead guitarist, while Roy was the bassist and, jo- and Yox was the drummer. 
after going to the 96 Warp Tour, uh, where Blink-182 performed, pivotal Warp Tour year, and being super inspired by the acts like NoFX and Pennywise and Blink-182, they decided to change their band's direction, and they also decided to change the name based on the fact that this was their 41st day of summer vacation and decided they would name the band Some 41 as well, as a result. In 1998, the group would begin working with Greg Norrie as their manager and producer. Norrie, who was the co-lead singer and guitarist in the Canadian band Trouble Charger, would suggest Wibley become the lead singer, which resulted in John Marshall leaving the group. With Wibley now on vocals, Dave Bach would step in as lead guitarist. And I am so sorry if I butcher that name. I tried finding a clip on YouTube where someone pronounced it and I had no luck. He was a friend of the band members and had gone to the same high school as them. An additional lineup change would occur in 1998 when the band got into a near-fatal car accident. Bassist Richard Roy decided to leave the group, and after a brief stint with Mark Spicolak as their bass player, Jason McCaslin, or otherwise known as Cone, would join as the permanent bassist in 1999. And it's at this point that I should probably note that all four members from the group's heyday have nicknames, which they're fairly known by among fans and are credited with in their album's liner notes. So... Um, I got my explanations from a tripod webpage that is still around called number four some 41 fans only dot tripod dot com. <laughs> Derek Wibley is busy D because he gets busy and that's spelled B-I-Z-Z-Y, by the way. Dave Bach is known as Hot Chocolate and Brown Sound because of his Indian heritage and because it's a nickname for Eddie Van Halen's guitar sound. Jason oh, my Mc- God. Sorry. That's like a, it's, it's offensive on like every level. And also... I- Ew, it's a fucking Ew. busy. I know. Disgusting. I know. I do think the brown sound was self-picked by him. So at least it's a little less effect. Like he brought that on himself versus having others sure, bring sure. it upon him. Jason it's still McCas- upsetting to hear it. It is still upsetting and he still very much goes by it. Jason McCaslin <laughs> is known as Cone, a nickname he got from Wibbly in high school because as teenage boys are so original. Uh, he ate ice cream cones daily. So as a, lactose intoler- <laughs> as a lactose intolerant person, I cannot relate to this. But just pounding so- those after school ice cream cones. So there is a 40 something man who just goes by cone now. And Steve Yacht <laughs> is known as Steve-O32. And this was pre-Jackass, <laughs> by the way, because he's terrible at sports and thinks that athletes who wear the number 32 excel at sports, which I mean, he's not wrong. There's Shaq That's not and wrong. Magic, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dr. J, Carl Malone, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, but- it's really got to be 24, but whatever, guy, it's fine. <laughs> So with the lineup changes, the group recorded a demo cassette in 98 that initially received no attention from an American or Canadian companies. So Nori, their manager, <laughs> wow. yeah. then he Harsh. decides he's going to send out a videotape of them shooting water guns around downtown Ajax, but set to the same music. And because I guess everyone is like off the heels of Blink-182 doing really well and like all these other pop punk bands kind of, you know, making big, selling big uh, numbers of records. They get um, all sorts of record labels interested in them, and they ultimately end up signing with Island Def Jam in 1999. And then in Canada, they were distributed by Aquarius Records, which is what I talked about earlier. So their debut EP, Half Hour of Power, became 
uh, was named that way because the album clocks in at just a few minutes under half an hour. And that's the thing with all these pop punk uh, albums, by the way. Not only are they fun to listen to, they're also fast. So you're not listening Mm -hmm. to it for longer than like 40 minutes tops. So this was released June 27, 2000 via Big Rig Records, a subsidiary of Island, which, you know, remember subsidiaries? (laughs) The they get absorbed was- by their sister company. <laughs> so hardcore. Uh, the EP was recorded in two weeks, basically featured their concert set list, but it produced a debut single, Makes No Difference, which was featured on several soundtracks, including Bring It On and Van Wilder. And what's notable about this song is that the music video takes place at a house party where the band is playing and features DMX riding on an ATV around the house. <laughs> R.I.P. R.I.P. So when he passed away, all these people were, bring, you know, talking about tributes and some 41 just talked about how sweet he was. So he Aww. ended up in this video because he happened to be filming Exit Wounds in Toronto with Steven Seagal. And according oh. to Derek Whitley, yeah, someone at the record company, because DMX was on uh, Def Jam as well, was like, wouldn't yeah, it be yeah, cool yeah. if DMX was in the video? And so he was filming in Toronto. He's like, yeah, I'll be on this. And he agreed and just did this cameo and... Derek Wibley was just like, yeah, there's no way he knew who he what we were, but since they were label mates, uh, he was down to do it. And apparently Sum 41 was like Def Chan's only rock band at the time. <laughs> that I was gonna ask, because I was like, is because Island Def Jam also had like, I don't know, I want to say like Debra. I know that's not true, but like they had I mean, a lot of like rappers and like not even not even just like black artists, like they just didn't have more than like one person as a band like that they were right. repping. It was a lot of like solo artists, period. 100%. So yeah, they were very much an anomaly at this label. When the band went back in the studio to record All Killer No Filler, according to Wibley, they only had a few songs to record and spent all their record label money on drinking, strip clubs, etc. because they were 19-year-old boys in Ontario where they were of the legal drinking age. They later went to L.A. and finished it, and it was actually produced by Jerry Finn, who we already talked about with Blink-182. The album's cover with the band members making faces was just taken from a bunch of Polaroids that they had taken of themselves and hung up on the walls of the studio as a joke. And we're just like, hey, this will make a good album cover. It was released May 8th, 2001 and sold. So the numbers are all over the place, but the one I could find was 3.5 million copies, but I'm pretty sure it sold more than that. It went triple platinum in Canada, in the UK, was among the top 30 best-selling albums of 2001 in Canada, and the album would peak at number nine on the Billboard 200 and would produce three main singles, Fat Lip, In Too Deep, and Motivation. And then there's a fourth single called Handle This, which was only released in Germany and Japan, which happens a lot for some 41 for some reason. The first single, Fat Lip, classic, was released April 22nd, 2001, peaked number one on the Billboard Modern Rock chart and number 66 on the Billboard 200 and to this day remains one of their most successful singles of all time. He said, Derek Wibley said in a recent Stereo Gum interview about the t- song's 20th anniversary that it almost didn't even get on the album. It was a last minute ad. Um, and ultimately, the song did pretty well when it was first released, but it got super boosted because they topped the TRL charts. They topped the Much Music Countdown in the summer of 2001. 
And then they were asked to perform at MTV's 20th anniversary show, where they got to perform with Judas Priest's Rob Halford and Motley Crue's Tommy Lee. Judas Priest, as you might remember, is referenced in the song lyrics, heavy metal and mullets is how we were raised. Maiden and Priest were the gods that we praised. And that's the extent of the Sub 41 rap rock that I'll do for today. But I, I wanted to get just one of those in. Uh, into deep. I'm applauding you mentally. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, obviously, the other singles, Into Deep, were were was huge, number 10 on the modern rock chart. Um, and it was co-written by Wibley and uh, Greg Norrie, originally intended to be a reggae song for Norrie's band Treble Charger featuring a verse, a verse by the rapper Snow, as in informer Lick Your Boom Boom Now. Whoa. That is the most random <laughs> shit. Is it I just because? Seen. Yeah, is it just because they're Canadian that they teamed up? I I don't know, but I will say uh, with Canada there is this thing called CanCon where you have to per like you have to a percentage of the music played on the radio has to be uh, Canadian to an extent of like having been recorded in Canada or performed by a Canadian artist or I don't know, but maybe it had to do with that. Who knows? Anyway. Motivation was released in January of 2002, and I should note that the music videos for uh, Motivation, as well as Fat Lip and In Too Deep, were directed by Mark Classfield, and that guy just had like the craziest three-year period I've ever seen because he directed, and this is just a sample of some of the videos, Nelly's Country Grammar, Batter Up and Ride With Me, Ludacris's Area Codes, NSYNC's Girlfriend, Bubba Sparks' Ugly, Vanessa Carlton's A Thousand Miles, Three Door Death. Three Doors Downs, Love Me When I'm Gone, and a couple of other Sum 41 music videos. So he was doing very well. Jesus. I know. Prolific. And I had to cut that down. <laughs> so they end up spending much most of 2001 opening for Blink-182 and The Offspring. Um, they end up playing over 300 concerts in 2001 before returning to the studio to record their follow-up, Does This Look Infected? Um, so they started recording for six to eight weeks um, once they were done with their initial touring in 2002 and then continued to do the recording while on the road, which like the, by the way, the release dates for these Sum 41 albums, they're like a boy band. Like they release an album in 2001 and then they release an album like 18 months later. It's pretty nuts. So Does This Look Invected would be released November 26, 2002. Uh, it would go on to peak at number 32 on the Billboard 200 and number eight on the Canadian Albums Chart. The special edition came with a DVD called Cross the T's and Gouge Your Eyes, How Early 2000s Pop Punk of You Some 41. The album has since sold over four and a half million copies worldwide, which sounds weird because I think All Killer No Filler sold more, but I digress. Uh, this album would have a few singles such as Still Waiting, The Hell Song, and then Over My Head, Better Off Dead. Which, by the way, when you just say these no these singles without any sort of context, just like is so pop punk early two thousands. Like, who else would name their songs these way? Like, anyway, I, I digress. Um, the album cover features Steve Yox uh, dressed as a zombie and was chosen months before the title. And the EP, which is "Does This Look Infected Too," also features another zombie, but this time it's Wibbly dressed up as a zombie. The following album has one of the craziest stories that comes before it. So after they're touring, in between touring for Does This Look Infected, they begin 
work on their album and they go and take a trip in 2004 to the Democratic Republic of Congo with War Child Canada to shoot a documentary on the effects of the Civil War. They arrived in the midst of a year and a half ceasefire, but during the trip, about 10 days in while having breakfast at their hotel, the war began again and they were basically <laughs> stuck in this hotel and this UN peacekeeper by the name of Charles Chuck Pelletier instructs everyone to leave the restaurant, get in like in a hotel room, which most of them ended up in Cone's hotel room, our very lactose tolerant <laughs> bass player. <laughs> our superhero that can take on all of this lactose. Essentially, though, Pelletier was able to secure armored carriers to take them and the rest of the hotel's occupants out of the hot zone. And they get the carriers to arrive 20 hours later and they're taken to safety. And as a result of this experience, they decide to name their next album after him. And it's called Chuck. <laughs> really the wildest I, thing I came across. <laughs> yeah, it's really like a very long scenic drive to get to the title of this album. I also vaguely remember like the Kurt Loder MTV news update about them getting stuck in the Congo, which like, oh, why were they sure. there for a documentary? Because it's Canadian? I, I think they were just no. I, I think War Child was like a big uh, nonprofit at the time, and I think they got sure. musicians to do that kind of thing. I'm not like that's pretty much it. I think that's wild. I just yes. feel like why would you send these dudes? To the- no okay. idea. No idea. Choices were made. Um, yeah. Ultimately, Chuck is released on October 12, 2004. They spawns four singles. We are we're all to blame. Pieces, some say, and no reason. And the album will end up winning a Juno Award in 2005 for Best Rock Album of the Year. The next uh, sequence in this bio is called Ch-Ch-Ch-Ch-Changes. So their manager, Greg Norrie, stops managing them in 2004. And then in May 2006, lead guitarist David Bach, I'm not going to bring up his nickname again, (laughs) would announce in a statement that he was leaving Sum 41 to work with his new band, Brown Brigade, saying, quote, I couldn't continue on creatively in Sum 41 without being a thorn in the side of the band. As people grow, they change. But ultimately, it was all amicable. The statement later read, the first thing Steve Cohn and Derek told me was that they just want me to be happy. It was awesome to hear that we all had the same feelings. We are brothers, and no matter what, they are Sum 41, and they will make an incredible album. Peace, love, and all the above. I'm going to start sending off my emails like that. Please do. It's the new, hey, all you cool cats and kittens. <laughs> it's 2021's cool cats and kittens. The band would eventually hire Gob frontman Tom Thacker as a replacement touring gu- guitarist and would have him join as an official member in 2009. And I should note that there was a lot of speculation at the time that Dave left the group because of Avril Lavigne coming in as the new guitarist. Uh, and I should note that this is, <laughs> yes, at this time is when Wibley married Avril Lavigne, effectively becoming, and our Canadian listeners will politely murder me after I say this, Canadian pop punk royalty. They would How eventually- How were they when they got married? They must so have been she, so young. She's a little bit younger than him. He was like 25. She was like barely 20, I think, or 21. So they were- Fairly young, and needless to say, they did separate in 2009 and later divorced in 2010. The band, as a trio, uh, would begin their work on their next album, Underclass Hero, in November of 2006. It ended up being produced by Derek Wibley, who was reluctant to step in that role, but ultimately they just couldn't find another producer, and it kind of happened that just that like that way for some reason. 
It was released in 2007 and uh, sold a million copies, had four singles, including March of the Dogs, an iTunes promo single. Remember those? <laughs> also, yes, that's remember- how I got. Um, remember Micah or whatever? Like, Mika. He had, like a- Thank yeah. you. Yeah. That and also that's how I found out about Haim. Haim. Oh. Do you remember I got an that iTunes t- promo single for the wire? Remember that time we all got that awful YouTube album force downloaded on our iTunes? Oh my god. Yeah, you mean the day that everybody collectively threw their iPhones into the ocean? Yes, I do. Kids will never know, man. <laughs> never know the struggle. Never know the struggles we've seen with technology. (laughs) Also, this single in which he uh, goes after then-President George W. Bush and alludes to Bush getting killed resulted in Derek Wibley almost getting deported, question mark? According to an interview, he said that a reporter told House Minority Leader John Boehner about the song, and it turned out... In turn, Boehner apparently was trying to say that he was threatening the president and tried to get him deported, which I think Wibley is making this up. I cannot see John Boehner spending the hours and time trying to get this pop punk musician deported back to Canada. The band. I don't know. Didn't they cancel Kathy Griffin for that photo, which I feel like is on par of like in terms of controversialness? Like, I don't know. Could happen. Could happen. The band would support the album by playing some warp tour dates in the summer of 2007, eventually headlining the Strength in Numbers tour, a tour of Canada with Finger Eleven. Oh boy, oh boy. That's a name I haven't heard in a long time. You and me both, my friend. During <laughs> Talk the about tour- like pop punk kings of being on random compilation albums too, by the way, to like tie it back to the compilation album you got with some 41 on it. 100%. 2009 saw the release of the band's first greatest hits compilation titled All the Good Shit, 14 Solid Gold Hits. And the mm-hmm. album in Japan is known as Eight Years of Blood, Sake, and Tears, the best of some 41. <laughs> That's incredible. I love it. Uh, so 2010 onwards, really, that was, you know, kind of the end of the band's heyday. They would begin recording their follow-up to Underclass Hero in 2008, 2009 announced that Gil Norton was the producer for their upcoming album. I should note Gil Norton, other prolific producer, Echo and the Bunnymen's Ocean in the Rain, The Pixies' Doolittle, Bossa Nova, and Trompe le Monde, Foo Fighters' Color in the Shape, Dashboard Confessionals, A Mark, A Mission, A Brand, A Scar, and Jimmy Eat yes. Futures. Just great, great rap sheet. That album, Screaming Bloody Murder, was released February 7th, 2011, after several delays, and it was the band's last album to be released on Island Records before they had fulfilled their contract and their first album to not be released on Aquarius Records. The album would really would debut at number 31 and sold about 52,000 copies, so this was like a big departure, but it did result in their first Grammy Award nomination for Best Hard Rock Metal Performance, ultimately losing to Foo Fighters. And since then, in the last decade, they have gone on to release two more albums, 13 Voices in 2016, Order and Decline in 2019. And there have been some additional lineup changes in the last decade as well. Steve Yox left the group in 2013 and in true L.A. fashion, moved into a career as a real estate agent. He still performs. <laughs> he still performs occasionally and also does stand up, as I found out when I found his set he did at Ha Ha Comedy, Comedy Club in L.A. in 2016, where he talked about having done Blow with Tommy Lee Metallica and then also alluded to having done Blow at this club before getting up on stage. So that was cute. 
Um, he yeah, is I wish still- you could see how big my eyes are right now. Like, not only are you cursing us with your comedy, but also it's cocaine-based comedy. It was cool, cool, surprisingly cool. funnier than I thought. I was expecting okay. some, like, low-rent Dane Cook, and it was – there were some moments, but it was it was a lot funnier than I thought. I was, I was pleasantly surprised. Meanwhile, Dave Vaksh did rejoin the group in 2015 after an almost decade-long hiatus, and Cone and Derek Wibley continue to be in the band to this day. Uh, Wibley has been the only continuous member since the band's inception in 1996, and he actually recently, in March, posted on his Instagram a photo of the 2001 MTV 20th anniversary performance describing how much that performance changed their life and made them known to the world. They have gone on to sell 15 million records. And that's all I have for some 41. Well, I think we have come to the end of our pop punk dissertation. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard today or any of our other previous episodes, please make sure you rate and subscribe to us wherever you listen to this podcast. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Old Millennials Pod. And if you're really dying for our hot takes, you can follow us both individually on Twitter. I am at Marge She Wrote. And I am at Emily A. Beijing. And until next time, we say bye-bye. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.